0: I'm sure most of you have plans for tonight or for tomorrow, and maybe even for things later this week. Even those who aren't Christians would understand or at least accept that Christmas time or the holiday season is a time of peace and joy and love and hope. At least it's supposed to be that. There is, however, another idea associated with the season that may not always seem as pleasant, and that is the idea of anticipation. Anticipation or expectation, there is on the one hand a positive kind of anticipation when you know something good is going to happen, but anticipating something also means you have to wait, and waiting by its nature brings a certain kind of pain. There is the pain of unmet desires, and that pain exposes someone's heart. In other words, there are people who wait well and there are people who don't. Just think about kids waiting for Christmas. You can have the very kind, smiling, happy, patient kid and then you have the other kid who's shaking all the presents, trying to peek into them and bothering mom and dad about when Christmas is coming, though it's clearly on the calendar already. It's one day less than what I told you yesterday. But as adults, we understand that waiting is hard too. Just think about the last time you went to the DMV or had to wait in a doctor's office or in a line that shouldn't have been that long at the grocery store. Waiting brings something out of you. The expectation is a kind of test. Well, the nation of Israel had to wait. They were waiting for over 1,500 years for God to fulfill the promises he had made, which we read at the beginning of the service. And that period tested The people, would they remain faithful to God? Would they continue to walk in obedience to His instruction? Would they walk in righteousness? Or in their desperation, would they turn away? And if you know the history of Israel, over and over again, they turned away. As a result of their turning away, God brought judgments. Smaller, immediate judgments were a lack of rain, a lack of crops. The broadest judgment was to be taken captive by foreign nations. But even in all those difficulties, God remained faithful to his promises. The nation was never exterminated. God preserved the nation and he raised up and used individuals who remained faithful even though the majority of the nation had turned away from the Lord. As we come to the biblical story of Christmas in the Gospel of Luke, what we find are examples of those kind of people. We have individuals waiting on the Lord. They're not perfect, but they do show us what it looks like to trust God, in his, uh, to trust God to fulfill his promises. Thinking about the concept of waiting, we could also imagine that each of these people had expectations in their own life. They, they had to deal with some kind of disappointment, but in that, they trusted God. The first example we have of someone waiting for something would be a man named Zechariah. You can uh, look at Luke 1, verse 5. That's the introduction to him. Luke 1, verse 5 tells us that Zechariah was a priest married to a woman named Elizabeth. But Luke's story begins with something broader. Verse 5 says, it all happened in the days of Herod, king of Judah. This introduces us to a national expectation. Historically, Herod the king is also known as Herod the great. But to an Israelite priest like Zechariah, Herod is not a great king. To start with, he's not a descendant of Jacob. More than likely, he's a descendant of Esau. Secondly, though Israel has a king in title, they don't have the political freedom that they had been promised by God. Herod and the rest of Israel is under the authority of the Romans. And that's not what an Israelite priest wanted for the nation. Zechariah's national expectation was that one day Israel would have a proper kingdom, totally free of outside control, under a righteous king from Israel. A second expectation or a second pain for Zechariah is a personal one. Luke tells us that he and his wife Elizabeth were well past childbearing age and they were never able to have kids. Children in that time were responsible to care for their aging parents. Children were also considered a blessing from the Lord. And so when a couple was unable to have children, many saw that as a sign of God's disfavor there was this unspoken, I assume, idea that, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they must have done something wrong. They must have grieved God in some way because he has not blessed them with children. So that's Zechariah. He, he's got a, a national pain and a, and a personal pain, two very significant but unmet expectations. But rather than grumble about the situation, notice what the Bible tells us about him and about his wife Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says. And they were both righteous before God. Walking blamelessly. Blamelessly. In all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So God takes notice of Zechariah's righteousness. He hears his prayers. And Luke goes on to say that one day. As Zechariah is ministering in the temple. The angel Gabriel appears to him. And he promises him that he will have A son. God is going to minister to Zechariah's personal expectation. Look at verse 14. This is the angel describing the result of this son. Verse 14, the angel says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is going to be a special son. He's going to be righteous. He's going to be significant. He is going to play a part in addressing the national expectation of Israel. Verse 16 continues. He, the son of Zechariah, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, Zechariah's son is going to prepare the nation for the next phase of God's plan. Zechariah's son will be a blessing not just to Zechariah's family but to the entire nation. This son will minister on behalf of God. And there's something very significant in Gabriel's message because this is the first time God has brought a kind of revelation to his people in over 400 years. The last time God spoke to Israel, it came through the prophet Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And in the closing verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, God promises to send Elijah. He says, I will send Elijah Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the day of the Lord is a time when God would judge Israel's enemies and restore the nation's freedom and glory. So, this is what's on Zechariah's mind. How does he respond? In a word, he's skeptical. He's an old man. Your wife's gonna get pregnant and have a baby? Down in verse 18, he asks for confirmation. He says to the angel, how shall I know this? How can I be sure this is going to happen? Evidently, seeing an angel appear to you and proclaim to you the glorious truth of God wasn't enough for him. So as both a sign and as a judgment, Zechariah loses the ability to speak until the angel's message comes to pass. So there's good news, but now it's tainted a little bit, at least for Zechariah. It's possible that Elizabeth looked forward to nine months of a quiet husband. I don't know. Maybe that's too long. Either way, together, they're waiting for the fulfillment of God's message. If I had to describe Zechariah's initial response to the message, I would say it was a response of obedient apprehension. Obedient apprehension. He, He wasn't convinced it was going to happen, but nonetheless, he did what he was told. Now, as the story continues, we come to a second person waiting. It's a young woman named Mary. She is a relative of Elizabeth. Based on the culture of that time, she's probably somewhere between 13 and 17 years old. She's a teenager. And the biggest news in Mary's life is that she is about to be married. She is legally betrothed to a man named Joseph, and... Preparing for a wedding brings with it all kinds of expectations. Her idea of a wedding may not have included all the cultural romantic things that we had today, but nonetheless, there, are, there would have been a joyful anticipation of what this next phase of life would look like for her. About six months after appearing to Zechariah, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary with a message for her. Look with me at Luke chapter 1 verse 31. The angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom There will be no end. So you've got two sons promised. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son. He's going to prepare the people. But Mary's son is going to be someone far greater. The child within her will be the son of the Most High, the son of God. And also he will be the long-awaited son of David. He will reign over Israel forever. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to come and dwell with his people to restore the nation's glory and freedom. And that's what the name of the child points to. The name Jesus means literally Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. Mary's son will be the promised savior the world is waiting for. And unlike Zechariah, Mary expects an immediate fulfillment of, of the angel's message. But since she's not officially married yet, she wants to know how this is going to happen. How can she conceive a son if she's still a virgin? And the angel says to her, this is going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. The child within her will be holy and sinless. He will be the work of God in her womb. And verse 38 of Luke 1 gives us Mary's response. Mary said, behold, I am the servant, or a better translation, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If we had to summarize Mary's response, we can say it is one of humble submission. Humble submission. So Zachariah's response was a, an obedient apprehension, but Mary's is humble Submission. She's going to obey and accept everything that God has told her. As the story continues, we get another response. A third response. This is from Elizabeth and Mary together because Mary does what most young women do when they find out they're going to have a baby. They go and tell somebody. Their response, just to summarize it up front, is one of joyful anticipation. Joyful anticipation in the plan of God. In verses 42 to 45, Elizabeth praises God. And then in verses 46 to 55, Mary praises God. And we're not gonna look at that in detail today, but those are wonderful passages to read, to study on your own. They both come together and they recognize that God himself is going to save his people. He's going to bring down the exalted and the mighty and he's going to exalt the lowly. He is coming to demonstrate his power, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his justice. God's going to fix this. Those are the opening three responses. Zechariah has an obedient apprehension. Mary has humble submission. Elizabeth mixed in there joyful anticipation. And that's the end of chapter one. The birth of Jesus comes to us in Luke chapter two. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not done with chapter one. I'm jumping ahead. The next thing is the birth of John the Baptist. So We're going to continue in verse 57. Three months later, the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth. Sorry, I'm rushing us. A week after the baby is born, the time has come for him to be named, and Zechariah, still unable to speak, writes down on a tablet. His name will be John. And the moment he does that, he is fulfilling the word of the angel, and he receives back the ability to speak, and his response is praise Despite his initial skepticism, God was faithful. And the faithfulness of God to give Zechariah a son directs his attention or reminds him of the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise to Israel. Zechariah's second response is a holy proclamation. It's a holy proclamation. He praises God. Look with me at Luke 1 verse 68. Zechariah had been given a son, so his personal expectation had been fulfilled, but that was a reminder of something greater to come. Verse 68, here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah understood that God was going to save the nation of Israel But he also understood that Israel's deepest problem wasn't external, it wasn't something outside them. The greatest problem the Israelites had faced wasn't the Assyrians, it wasn't the Babylonians, it wasn't the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans who had conquered them. Israel's deepest problem was its own sin. The reason they had been given up to those nations was because they had strayed from God. And so let's continue what he says in verse 76. He says, and you, child, speaking to his own son, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What Israel needs most is not salvation from Rome. It's salvation from sin. And Zechariah understood that. The question is, do you understand that? All of us want a better life. All of us are, 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 are thinking about things that we, we hope will change to improve our life. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for a job. We're waiting for a husband or a wife. We're waiting for a kid or a grandkid. We're waiting for retirement. We're waiting for death or for someone else to die. Who knows? Some of those desires aren't inherently wrong, but we need to see every desire that we have for something good as a pointer to something greater. We need to be looking for something much better than nice circumstances. We need salvation from sin. Most of the Israelites would understood. Every Israelite knew one day a savior is going to come. He's going to judge the world, and he's going to bring an eternal, glorious kingdom. What they didn't understand was that they would not enter that kingdom. They assumed, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew, I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna be in the kingdom. Instead, they would be judged for their rebellion. And that's the same situation we find ourselves in today. We need to be rescued from the consequences and the power of our sin. It's not enough to say, well, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I'm in, I'm good, right? Many people, even outside of this room, they look at the world, they go, look, look what you see on the news. There's, there's, wick, are there, there's wicked people out there. Are there people in this world who are worse than you in terms of sin? Yes, there are. But that doesn't mean that we get to enter heaven based on how righteous we are. God's standard to enter into the glorious and eternal kingdom is not how good we are relative to other people. It's how good we are relative to him. God's standard is Perfection. And I know you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. Nobody is. Paul says that in Romans. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we have no peace with God. We in ourselves are enemies of God. But the story of Christmas is the story of God sending us in love and in mercy his son Jesus Christ to accomplish what we could not and cannot do on our own. He came to perfectly walk in righteousness, to perfectly fulfill the law of God, and then to die as a substitute for sinners. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead in demonstration of his victory over sin, over the curse, over Satan, so that he would save all who would believe in him. We need a substitute. We need a perfection outside of ourselves to be credited to our account. We need someone to take our punishment in our place. We need a power outside of us to give us hearts that can walk righteously with God. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That was the true hope of Israel. They needed salvation from their sins. And just like God promised, it was gonna come to pass and it would happen through the child in Mary's womb. So now let's get to Christmas morning, Luke chapter two. I'm gonna read verses one through seven and I want you just to take note that there's no fanfare here. There's not a lot of drama very straightforward, very matter of fact. Luke says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of... Of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There's no mention there of a donkey. There's no mention there of a long, arduous journey. There's no mention there of her arriving the very day she needs to give birth. She just said she was with child. Verse 6 says While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there were no place for them in the inn. The word inn could also mean a type of guest home. All the people are crowding in. You don't have spaces to put a child. So they found a manger and that's where they placed him. So all the stuff we tend to associate with the drama of the birth of Christ, you know, it comes from, Hollywood or movies or skits. Luke doesn't really focus on those things. And that's because the significance of what happened is not connected to any drama or tension in that moment. The significance of what happened is connected to the identity of the one who was born. Look at Luke chapter two, verse eight, and it's continuing the story. Jesus is born, and now we have another angelic visit verse 8 says and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night when you see shepherds we saw shepherds last night in the christmas play maybe you've gone to more uh, you know elaborate plays or you see movies and their shepherds they they tend to be glorified like there's something noble about the shepherd they have that very impressive staff and very stately appearance that was not the way the culture viewed shepherds in the first century. Shepherds were at the bottom of the social scale. Shepherds were hired hands to do work. Shepherds were stinky. Shepherds were poor. Shepherds did not get good sleep. Shepherds were expendable. And shepherds had a reputation of being liars and thieves. Because if they got hungry, they could say, hey, we got a sheep. And they could say, you know what? I think a wolf came in at night and kind of walked away with the sheep. Excuse me. (laughs) So you can imagine most shepherds being at the bottom of the social ladder had some kind of hope for a better life. Maybe if they saved up enough money, they could build a better life for themselves, for their families. Who knows what they were talking about that night? But on that night when Jesus was born, an angel comes and he announces to them the greatest news they could ever possibly hear. Luke two, verse nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is first century. There's no there's there's no electricity. There are no spotlights. Nothing. They all they have is torch lights when it's available the star, the moon, the stars. And this glorious being appears to them and they're terrified. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not. Same thing the angel said to Zechariah, same thing he said to Mary, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These were not educated men, but even they would have understood the national and the and the, the, the religious and the eternal significance of the message. The world is going to change. A Savior has been born, and he is Christ. The Lord. Christ is, uh, comes from a Greek word, Christos. It just means the anointed one. The Hebrew equivalent, I've told you, is Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, they mean the same thing. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. What does it mean to be an anointed one? The term points to someone who had been specially chosen by God, designated for a task. Prophets were anointed with olive oil. Priests were anointed with oil. Kings were anointed with oil. But up to this point, the prophets of Israel and the priests of Israel and the kings of Israel had all been stained by corruption. They had led the nation astray. But now a new king is coming, a new prophet and a new priest This Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one is the Lord Himself. He's God in human flesh. But despite the glorious and majestic calling of this child, He wasn't born in a palace or placed in a golden crib. He was born into a humble family and placed in a manger that is, a feeding trough for animals. Verse 12, the angel says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. There were lots of babies in Bethlehem. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That was the norm. There are lots of babies wrapped in swaddling cloths. And you'll find him, the angel says, lying in a manger. That's the sign. The significance of the manger is to point out which kid is the right one. The shepherds saw the angel, they heard the message, and I assume in, in their minds, they're, they're trying to process all that this means. But before they can respond, before they can even talk about it amongst themselves, something happens, verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. That word host is kind of an old Christian word from the Bible. Host means army, army. So if they were terrified at one angel, who knows what happened when a, an, an army of angels appears. And in angelic voices, verse 13, they are saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. This, this, these angels appear and they give glory to God. Why? Because the birth of Christ ultimately is not about you and it's not about me. It's about God fulfilling his promise and accomplishing his plan for mankind. He is acting out in blessing and peace toward those with whom he is pleased. There's something to be said there about God's attitude toward man. Don't listen to those people in the culture. Or even in Christian circles who say, well, maybe God didn't create the world. Or if he did, I think he just created the world and walked away. God doesn't care about people. God is indifferent about what happens to us. That's not the message of the Bible. God loves his creation. For his own glory, he delights in the salvation of man. He is pleased to be reconciled to his creatures. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? The praise of the angels points the shepherds to the joyful fulfillment of God's eternal plan. And in hearing the message and the praise of the angels, we have the response of the shepherds and their response is enthusiastic investigation. Enthusiastic investigation. They have an urgency within them. Verse 16, the shepherds went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Those are the final details Luke gives us concerning the day Jesus was born. But the rest of Luke's gospel describes the life and the work of Jesus. He shows us how Jesus fulfilled the promise of God to his people. As we wrap up, I want you to jump down to verse 25 for a moment. Just want to point out two more people, very briefly. These people saw Jesus... One week later, when he was presented in the temple, the first was a man named Simeon. Look at verse 25, it just says there, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, the, the rest, the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. When Simeon sees the baby Jesus, he praises God, At the end of verse 30, Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Who is this child? Look at verse 32. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the nations, and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon understood that the glory of Israel meant salvation for the world. The second person who saw Jesus, eight days old, was a prophetess named Anna. Jump over to verse 38. Just a brief description. It says she worshiped with fasting and prayer, night and day, and then verse 38, it says, coming up at that very hour into the temple, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Did you notice a word that was repeated both in the description of Simeon and Anna? Both times it speaks of the people waiting again for the redemption of Israel. Christ came as the fulfillment of that promise. He's the savior of Israel and the savior of of the world now in knowing that now 2000 years later we can ask if Christ is the savior why is this world such a mess you don't have to be on social media or on the news very long to know we still have problems nations are at war families have strife violence abounds where's the how is he the savior We know the answer to that, but Israel didn't know it at the time. The answer is, he's coming twice. He came once, he was revealed as the Savior, he was rejected by his people, he was put to death in the plan of God as a sacrifice for sinners, but he was raised and he ascended to the Father, but he will return one day and he'll have the final victory. So in the first coming of Christ, he comes to pay for sin. He proves his power over Satan and all evil. But one day he will return and death will be completely abolished. That day hasn't come yet. The Savior who came and was placed in a humble manger will come again one day, not in humility, but in power and glory for judgment and salvation. And until that day comes, Christ is calling people to himself so they would be spared judgment and made citizens of that kingdom. This is the message of our church. This is the message of Christmas. We, on behalf of God, call people to surrender their lives to Jesus, the true and coming king. You are called, all of us are called to recognize that in ourselves, we deserve judgment, but we can trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for salvation. He's the only savior. You call out to him in prayer. You beg him for mercy. You ask him to forgive you, and God saves you. He transforms you. He makes you a new creation. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to any of the members here. We'd love to talk with you more about what it is to know Christ. And for those of us who have already trusted in Christ and surrender our lives to him, we recognize that all the prophecies that we read and all the prophecies in the Old Testament, many of them were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. But there are many prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And so just like Israel, waiting for their Savior, we're, we're waiting today. The people of God are waiting. The question is, are we waiting well Are we waiting faithfully? Even if you're a believer, maybe your response is more like Zechariah's. It's apprehension. I know it's true, but I'm just not able to live in light of that future day. Pray that God would grow your faith. If you want to wait well, we need to be marked by the other responses. We should have a submission to God. We want to be obedient to his commands. We also want to be marked by anticipation. God did not place us here and give us the message of salvation so we would be bored or indifferent. God wants us to live with hope and joy. And he wants us as a church and as individuals to also be marked by proclamation, to announce the good news of Christ, to pray that God would give us opportunities to talk to coworkers and neighbors and family and friends, How sad is it that we are more excited and more eager to talk about a new restaurant than we are to talk about the coming of our Savior? Let's proclaim the good news we've been given. And lastly, like the shepherds, we should be marked by an enthusiastic investigation. We should should want to learn more about what we've been told. That that was the response of the Bereans in Acts. They, They heard the message from Paul, they believed it, and then they searched the Scriptures how do you find out more about what it is when Christ will come? That's reading his word. What's gonna happen when Jesus comes back? What is this eternal, glorious kingdom gonna look like? What is it gonna be like? You wanna know? That's what we'll talk about next week. Because we're gonna finish the story. we am gonna jump to the last few pages of your Bible. But in all of it, the message that is always there is that God is faithful to his promise. And God rewards those who faithfully wait for Him. The King has come. He's brought us salvation. And the King will come again and save His people forever. Let's close in prayer. And then we'll close in a final song as we remember the gift of God that brought us peace with Him. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your many blessings. We're going to enjoy good things with family and friends and gifts and food. But in all those blessings, we pray that you would help us to be pointed to the greatest blessing you've given us. We pray that you would take our mind to the undiluted eternal joy of the coming kingdom. Help us not forget what we have been given, nor to forget the inheritance that will be ours. We do pray your blessings on our celebrations this week. As we meet with people, we pray you give us opportunities to live out what it is to be a citizen of heaven and give us the boldness to declare the truth of Jesus Christ. And we do pray, Father, you give us a growing hunger to know and to serve and to love our Lord even more. We ask in his name, amen.